0: Tonight is the last message where we are going to focus on the church at Antioch of Syria. And if you have been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we have been focusing both through the book of Acts and then through the book of Galatians or in the book of Galatians on this remarkable Gentile-oriented church. It was the first, you might say, of the true Gentile churches in which the gospel went and exploded among the Gentile people. It was an absolute hub of teaching and evangelism in that entire region, as we have been learning about. Antioch of Syria was the third most important city in the entire Roman Empire. In terms of importance in the world and in the culture of the day, it dwarfed Jerusalem. We think of Jerusalem as being the big hub of, the, of, 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 of that area. Well, really, Antioch of Syria dwarfed Jerusalem. And as the church at Antioch grew, the issue of how Gentiles and Jews would live together came to the forefront. And it came to a head, as we see here in Acts chapter 15. Last Sunday evening, we looked at Galatians chapter 2 and we talked about the issue of how this air this spirit of prejudice the spirit of how we look at other cultures and separate from them can influence and affect even the most spiritual of Christians if the apostle peter the one who by direct vision and revelation from God was the one who was called to spread the gospel to the Gentiles through a man named Cornelius. If he could be separated into this kind of party spirit, a hypocritical spirit, a of, um, of spirit that was driven by the fear of man to avoid the unity of the spirit, if a man like Barnabas... Who had helped found the church at Antioch, who had helped be one of its great foundations and leaders and teachers, if he could come into this spirit of division and disunity? How much more we? How much more we can be driven apart, pushed away from the unity of the Spirit? And we saw last week that what ultimately we need to stand on above all things is the gospel. What is the gospel, and how does it relate to us and to our lives? The question I ended with last weekend is one that I'd like to take up tonight. One of the stickiest, one of the most difficult of all issues, whenever we are looking at cultures being joined together in one church, is how to discern, how to distinguish between what is biblical, and thus must be insisted upon, must be a requirement, and what is merely cultural and therefore flexible. Now, when I say cultural, it is easy for us to miss how often what we do as a local church is dictated truly by culture because we've always done it that way. Now, if you were just, to, if someone were to come in, a visitor from Mars were to come into our church. And we were to be forced to explain to them with no, absolutely no background, no tradition um, in American Christianity, much less Christianity at Straight Gate Church or how we do things. And they were to look at all the practices that we have that make up our worship and our tradition here at Straight Gate. How many of them would we be able to point to and say, the Bible commands us to do this? It would be worth actually cataloging and thinking about. The fact that I wear a tie and a coat when I preach. Certainly someone coming in for the first time would say, why do you do that? Well, what would my response be? Would I say, well, because the Bible tells me to? Or would I say, well, this is because we've always done it like this. We could say that for the music. Why do you have a piano up there? Why, why do you accompany music? The worship like that. Why do you sing these hymns? Why do you sing from that songbook? What about that dark blue hymn book? That's a really funny book. Uh, that was a joke, guys. Come on now. But you could go on and on and on down the list. Why do you do the way the things you do them? Why do you have a testimony time? Why do you have communion every Sunday evening and once a month on Sunday mornings? Why do you have, why do you have um, offering boxes in the back? Why don't you pass around plates for money? In other words, when we come together as a church around a variety of different things, there are all kinds of things, hopefully, that we would point to and we say, we do that because the Bible tells us to do that. We stand on that. But frankly, we have to point to a number of things and just say, well, I'm not sure why we do it like that. We just always have. Or because this is the way American Christians always have. The point is, there are some issues that we are going to come in a multicultural city that are going to be rooted in the word of God and others that are not. And the question for us, if we are truly seeking to reach out to this very multicultural city, one that is far more like Antioch in Syria in many ways than we would imagine, the most diverse neighborhood in all of the city of Minnesota, the state of Minnesota is here, right where we are. Multi ethnic, multiracial, multicultural. If we are going to be like the city of Antioch in Syria, how are we going to think about issues that are biblical and thus essential and required in all times and all places and issues that are not? And once we start to think about it like that, what do we do next? I think when we reach Acts chapter 15, we're going to start at least developing a framework for how we think about these issues, even if Acts 15 doesn't give us all the answers. How do we think about the difference between biblical requirement and cultural preference or taste in the way we reflect on our own life as a church and our desire to reach a very multicultural, multi-ethnic city? The title of the message tonight is Gospel Sensitivity for Antioch, gospel sensitivity for Antioch. Now, what is the issue going on in Acts chapter 15? You recall we touched on it a little bit last week. A Gentile church is forming. I should say Gentile churches. And immediately those who were very rigorously and conservatively Jewish have one question. Are they circumcised? Now, this was, of course, not merely a matter of prurient interest. It was a matter connected to the very very ethos of what it meant to be a Jew. To be a Jew was to have an us versus them mentality. It was to have the mentality that we are God's chosen race. We are his chosen ethnicity. He chose us going all the way back to Abraham, who was the friend of God and the father of many nations. And through Abraham, God chose the Semitic people as his channel of blessing to the entire world. And the sign that stood out, that separated the Jewish people from all others, centrally was the sign of circumcision, an actual physical sign. So the Jewish people, as we saw last week, the Jewish Christians, were not doubting whether Gentiles could be saved. They believed that Gentiles could be saved. But in their mind, since they were the channel of God's blessing to the world going back in the Old Testament, surely that meant if a Gentile were to come into the family, were to come into God's blessing, they were required to be circumcised like a Jew and to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws, like keeping kosher, like certainly Sabbath obligations, like a variety of other practices in the Old Testament that would be a requirement for the Jewish people. And this became quite a stir. We saw last week Paul himself began disputing hotly about this. This became an issue we saw in Galatians chapter 2 in in the, the disunity that arose in the church there from people separating and isolating based on whether they were Gentile or Jew. And we read here in Acts chapter 15 that they decided to send the issue to the mother church, if you will, the headquarter church, if you will, in Jerusalem, where the apostles, or at least some of the apostles still were, where James, the Lord's brother, Jesus' brother was, and seems to have been the kind of head, uh, leader of the church at Jerusalem. And what we need to recognize here, and what I want to do is, I want to look at how the church at Jerusalem thought about this question. What was their reasoning? How did they reach an answer as we know what they ultimately said? No, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You don't have to keep Old Testament regulations in order to be saved. That's not the gospel. But we notice what, perhaps as you read, you noticed what they did say. When they wrote to them, they said, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain, you stay away from, meats offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. How did they think about what kinds of instruction they were going to give to this very different Gentile culture than to the Jewish culture that was in conflict. Three things of their reasoning. First of all, notice their awareness. Their awareness. What was the awareness that they had? Well, let's start here with Peter. Peter, after there had been much disputing, gets up and he has something to say. Notice here in verse 7. Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us. God chose that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God chose that the Gentiles would hear and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, Bear them witness. He testified about them. How did he testify to their salvation? Because he gave them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, friends, there are just some wonderful things that I should just pause for a moment to say. What does it mean to become a Christian? It means that your heart is made pure by faith. Isn't that a wonderful thing when we know inwardly how dirty our hearts are? I mean, honestly, when when people say of themselves, well, I think I'm a pretty good and moral person, generally speaking. Do they know their hearts? Scripture says our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And if we would be truly honest with ourselves about how our own hearts, our priorities, our thinking, our acting, is affected by our own self-centeredness, by our own pride, by our own vanity, by our own cravings and our own desires and our own lusts, surely we would say, my heart needs to be purified. My heart needs to be made pure. In other words, the problem is not that I've got a generally good spring, a good fountain, and sometimes things just go wrong. Our humble recognition, as in light of what scripture tells us, is that no, my spring is wrong from the get-go. My fountain is pumping out dirty water. The spring, the fountain needs to be cleansed. If the outcropping of it, if the outgrowth of it, if the flow of it is going to be clean. And notice here, what it means to become a Christian is for your heart to be purified by faith. Not only that, what does it mean to become a Christian? It means to receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. I don't mean that as being something spooky or something mystical. It means that the way that your heart is purified is that a new force, a new person moves in that God enters into your being, becomes unified with your human spirit, and empowers you to live the way that he wants you to live. This is what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not something we do. It is relying on the one who already did everything we need. And so Peter here is testifying to the very heart of the gospel that God gave witness... He testified to the Gentile faith by giving them the Holy Ghost and he purified their hearts by faith. Now look at verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God or put God to the test to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Now notice something here. The first thing that Peter was very, very focused on in how he thought about these issues was his witness to what God was doing. His witness, his testimony to what God was doing. Peter recognized this. God was at work. God was doing something. Why? Because he saw it. He was the one who had been privileged to give the word that opened the door to the Gentiles through a man named Cornelius. And now he sees, he had seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of these Gentiles, and he was willing to say, it's not my testimony that matters, it's his testimony. He is the one who is at work. Now, this is the very first step when we are going to be sensitive to a multicultural world in which we live in the city of Minneapolis. It's this, God's at work. And do you believe that? Do you believe that on the streets of these city across every single different ethnicity and culture that we are ministering to today, God's at work? Do you believe God is at work among the Somalis who are our neighbors, that God is at work among the Latino population, that God is at work among the Tibetan population, that God is at work among the Hmong population, that God is at work among the African-American population, that God's among, among the, the hippies that are uh, in, in this city? Do you recognize that God is at work and his work is to bring people to repentance and faith, to purify their hearts by faith and to give them the Holy Spirit? You see, when we are blind to what God is doing, we think that God is only doing something in our four walls, within our four corners. And we become blind to how big God is and what he actually is doing at work in glorifying Jesus Christ. So the first thing Peter is doing is looking for God's testimony. God is at work, and what is he doing? And that led to his great concern. What was his concern? Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? His great concern was, let me not hinder the work that God is doing. Let me not stop it. You know, friends, when, when we uh, put a requirement in a multi-ethnic or multicultural world for people to adopt our culture, whatever that culture is, to come to Christ to be a faithful disciple, do you know what we're doing? We're putting a yoke on them. We are at danger of hindering God's work by putting our own requirements on top of it. And Peter said, no, 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 let that never be. God's at work, so let me assist it, not hinder it. Now, we should just embrace that as just a general rule. If God is at work in this city, And he's drawing people out to himself. Our goal should be, God, let me never stand in the way by anything that is beyond what your desire is, what your will is. Let's all come into that priority. That should be all of our desire. But notice also then what he says. I love this. In verse 11, he says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now stop there for just a minute. What's he saying? We believe that we shall be saved even as they. Do you know what I would have expected him to say? We believe that they shall be saved even as we. You get it? We're the saved ones. Maybe they can get saved just like us. Do you see that he does exactly the opposite? We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we might be saved just like them. In other words, Peter had no doubt about what God's work in them was. He was just hoping that God's work was just the same in us. Now, do you know there's some real humility there and some real identification with the work of God? To look out at what God is doing in different pockets of this city in a multicultural and multi-ethnic city and not having the kind of perspective like I'm kind of, um, um, the buttons are bursting on my shirt and then saying maybe some people can get holy enough to join us but instead be saying, you know what the grace of God is? How amazing is this? The grace of God is that I can even be saved, just like they are. That's a pretty good attitude to have. It's a pretty good humility to have because it recognizes that at the foot of the cross, the ground is equal No one stands taller at the foot of the cross and no one stands shorter because it's through no goodness of our own, it's through no cultural superiority, it's through no racial superiority, it's through no socioeconomic superiority, no moral superiority, no religious superiority that I am accepted in Jesus Christ. It's only solely through him and we all stand at the same height. So notice here Peter has an awareness that God is at work and he is looking for everything he can do to stay out of the way. That's a great attitude for us to have when we anticipate what is biblical and what is cultural about the way that we work together. Notice secondly, not just the awareness that God is at work, but notice secondly, the authority. And I love this. Let's go on to what James has to say. Then all the multitude, verse 12, kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, James answered, saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now pause there for just a moment. I just want to say this because I think it's important. You may have those very sincere neighbors or friends who would tell you that, Paul, that Peter was the first pope, that he was the authority, that he stood in the shoes of Jesus Christ, upon this rock I will build my church, and that the church at Rome today bears his authority. Well, wh- when we go back to Acts chapter 15, we see nothing of the kind. Peter was not the one that gave the final sentence. Peter never stood up as a kind of binding, infallible authority. In fact, just last week, we saw that Peter needed to be rebuked. Peter needed to be corrected for his erroneous thinking. This is not any diss on Peter any more than it's a lifting up of James. It's simply just to say the Bible suggests something different to us. Now notice again, James answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So now he's identifying with Peter. This is what we have seen. God is bearing them witness. He's testifying. And notice this. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them, we don't harass them, which from among the Gentiles. Our turn to God. Now now pause there for just a moment. What do we just read? James ultimately to determine the matter goes back to Amos chapter 9. That's where he's quoting from. It's somewhat of a liberal a liberal quote, it's more like a paraphrase. But he is quoting Amos chapter 9 and he says what Peter is saying about God bringing the Gentiles to salvation, the words of the prophets agree. Now you say, "Well, why does this matter?" The logic that James has, he seems to have, is that God has from the beginning testified that the Gentiles would come into his plan. And not only that, God's assessment is that the Gentiles would come in still as Gentiles. They wouldn't become Jews. They would remain with their Gentile character. And the logic that James seems to be drawing is, therefore... This has been part of God's plan all along, that the Gentiles would come in even as uniquely Gentile without being circumcised, without keeping all the elements of the Judaic law, and therefore, that is what we're going to do. And you say, well, why is that important? Our statement of faith here at Gate Church, the very first one says this, we believe the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to be the verbally inspired word of God, without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will, the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men and the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word of God is the complete and final authority for all Christian faith and life? If you do, then what is our authority for determining what is cultural and what is biblical? The text of the word of God. And this is exactly what the early church did. What does the Bible say? What do the prophets have to say about this? What is the answer, not only based on our experience, not only based on the testimony of what we're seeing, but on the authoritative words of God? As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What is our authority for what is cultural or what is biblical? It is what the Word of God says, and it is taking the Word of God on its own terms. Now, there are two dangers that we run into here. There are two manipulations. One is to take away from the inspired Word of God because of culture. Now, if we have any question about that, we only need to look all around us today. It's happening all the time. I remember my brother telling me about going to, a, I think it was a sporting event with a longtime friend of ours one time. And he asked my brother, he said, so when when are you guys, when is your church gonna modernize on LGBT issues? When are you gonna kind of get into the, the 21st century? And James had the opportunity just to say to him, well, never really, because we go on what the Bible says. Now, we simply want to understand what does the Bible say? What does, how does it relate to the way that we live? And therefore, we will follow it. And whether it's that issue or a variety of other issues, the question is not what the culture thinks about a particular issue. It is what the text of the word of God rightly and properly understood means. And this simply goes back to who we are as Christians. If we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, that literally it is God-breathed, it is God's manual for life, then when we substitute our view for his view, we are acting in the ultimate rebellion against the one who created us, against the one who has said, do you want to know how to live? Do you want to know how to pursue your life? in a way that ultimately is going to be in keeping with the way I designed you to flourish, it's right here. And ultimately today, the great great enmity, the great conflict with biblical submission is ultimately the rebellion that plagued man from the very beginning. Hath God said? Did God really say that? And always it is the lie of the devil. As I have said to people sometimes, if I had a car manual and it told me how to operate my car correctly, what a silly thing it would be for me to say, well, I know the car manual says that. I know the author, I know the maker of this vehicle, the manufacturer of it, tells me to do it this way, but you know what? I would rather roll the dice and do it another way. Well, You can go ahead and try that, but don't be surprised. When the car starts making clunky little noises and you wonder what's going on in the engine, the point is, if we believe that God made us and created us, If we believe that he has given us a revelation of how we are to live and to carry out our activity, not because he is some scowling, frowning God on us, but because he desires us to flourish and he has told us how to do so, then the only way that we can do that is to not come over his revelation and say, I will judge what I like and what I don't like, but is to come under it and say, you tell me and I'll listen. And that ultimately is one of the fundamental dividers here. In a world that says all truth is relative, it's whatever you think, in which man becomes God. Or it is the view that says there is a truth. There is the truth. And ultimately, God has the right to say what is good and bad for me. So there is the cultural pressure that takes away from the word of God when it becomes unpopular, but there is the other tendency equally to add to the word of God because of a sense of what is best. You say, what would this be? I remember I was talking to someone uh, a while ago, and we were having some disagreement on whether the Bible really prohibited some kind of certain kind of behavior, and i I'd, put it out very clearly. This is what the Bible says. I cannot say that on the basis of the text of the word of God that this is always intrinsically black and white wrong. And I said, I can't say that I think it's it's always wise to do this. I wouldn't counsel someone to do this, but I cannot say in the text of the Bible it's wrong. And this person says, well, doesn't the Bible just tell us if it's wise to do something? Doesn't the Bible command us to do it? And it was interesting because... This is always a tendency that we have. We say, well, the Bible might not be clear on this issue, but you know, it sure makes a lot of sense to me. So it must be clear. It must be black and white, because it makes sense to me, because it's logical to me. And surely God wants us to act logically. Well, of course God wants us to act wisely. But who's the one who tells us who acts why, what, what, what wisdom is? Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. And our wisdom ultimately is found in the leadership of the Holy Spirit to which every single one of you, if you are a Christian, has access. He is the one who teaches you. He is the one who leads you to be conformed to the image of his Son. And here's why we have to be so cautious about going beyond the text of the word of God to substitute our own judgment, our own wisdom, our own this makes sense. One of the reasons is this, because we are often terrible judges of what is wise. Terrible judges of what is wise. I look back to things that I probably even several years ago thought was wise, and I think, what what on earth was I thinking? I wasn't very wise. I saw this recently because... I remembered um, the great Baptist evangelist, in some ways who did many wonderful things for the cause of Christ, John R. Rice. John R. Rice was very open in his life in favor of racial segregation. And I, I came across one of his writings, and I just want you to listen to this. He said, socially, it is better for both Blacks, he says, use the word Negroes, and whites to run with their own kind and intermarry with their own kind. The mixing of races widely differing is almost never wise. And he used that word wise. Wise is almost never wise. Well, what authority, and I'm not, I I I don't intend to 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 be um, to be uncharitable or unkind, but what authority was Mr. Rice basing that on? Was it the authority of the Word of God who showed us that Moses, one, of course, the great heroes of our belief, married an Ethiopian woman and was, con- and was con- con- uh, criticized in his own time for doing so? Was it on the basis of the authority of the word of God? Or was it on a wisdom that was based on something else? And we could go on and on and on down the list that in a particular culture, something appears to be wise, and so we say, it is biblical. It is biblical. And then we step back with hindsight in 20 or 30 or 40 years and we say not only was that unwise, that was, that was awfully immoral. It was contrary to the word of God. Like so many of our sordid history of the treatment of, of, uh, of racial issues has been. You could say the same thing about slavery, about all kinds of other abominations that even Christians justified as, well, this is wise, this is appropriate. And so we're going to say the Bible is clear on this issue. Nonsense. Nonsense. The ultimate authority is not our wisdom. It's not us who gets to stand over the text of the Bible and say, I think this makes sense, God. I'm going to pretend you were clearer on this than you actually were. No. We stand under the Bible and we say, God, were you clear on this? Were you black and white on this issue? If you were, then we are too. But if you're not then we're not going to ask you to be more clear on it than you were. We're not going to ask you to be more stringent on it than you were. We are going to trust your wisdom over our own. Now, that's simply a submission to the authority of the text of the inspired word of God, worked out then in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given to every one of us. What does that mean? We see the same thing here, Their authority was rooted in the Word of God, and ultimately that must be our same. We see the awareness of God being at work. We see, secondly, the authority of the Word of God. And thirdly, I want you to see here a kind of sensitivity that ultimately came through in what we'll call an association. In association. Notice then what James says in verse 20. He has said, My sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Now, what's going on here? James has just said, we're not going to make them get circumcised. We're not going to make them keep the Old Testament laws. That's not the gospel. That's not what the authority of Scripture tells us. But he says, here's what we are going to do. We're going to instruct them. We're going to ask them not to eat things that were polluted by idols, not to eat things strangled or with blood, and not to commit fornication. You say, is that just taking away everything we just heard? Well, let's think about this. Notice what he says. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every day, Sabbath day. What's what's the reasoning here? What's the logic? Well, let's go back, first of all, to what he is asking them to abstain from. The first thing is this. Don't eat things that have been polluted or that have been connected to idol worship in town. Now, if you had to understand, if you were in a Gentile city, your city was marked by idolatry. That's what it was. These were pagans. And pagan practices would include sacrificing meat to the idol gods in the idol temple. And as a result, you would bring your ox or your goat or whatever it was to be sacrificed. The priest would take some of the meat and burn it and sacrifice. And some of it would go to the priest. And if the priest didn't want to eat it, it would be sold in the meat market. And it would then be public. It would be like the local grocery store. Well, here's the meat from the local idol temple. Well, you can imagine the Jew. The Jew with a sensitive conscience toward idolatry said, there's not a chance I'm going to go anywhere that near that meat market because I don't want to be polluted by what has been offered to idols. And so James is saying, stay away from the meat market that has been polluted by idolatry. Here's what else we said, from things strangled. Now, it was apparently a Gentile delicacy not to eat meat like the Jews did, where you literally sever the head of the animal, drain out the blood, and then cook it. The Jews would actually, or the Gentiles would actually eat meat where the animal had been strangled, the blood had not been drained, and it would be prepared. It would be cooked in the blood, if you will. And so this would connect also then to what he says next, from things strangled and from blood. The Jews, of course, recognized as the Old Testament law says, the life of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the flesh is in the blood, and so stay away from eating blood, stay away from this. And here James says, here's a particular dietary practice. And then he says, and from fornication. Now, what does he mean from fornication? Well, a couple things. One, it was in Gentile cities, fornication was rampant. In fact, that was connected to idol worship. Sometimes the priestesses of the local Gentile pagan temple would be effectively prostitutes. And the whole connection of the entire worship, the whole connection of the religious ceremony would be to immoral practices. So certainly, James is saying, stay away from that. It also could be, though, that because the Gentiles practiced effectively incestuous marriage, they would not keep to the kind of, of Old Testament prohibitions about what kind of, uh, of, 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 of closeness of relative you could marry, that James was also saying, don't be marrying people who fall within these laws of consanguinity. Now, What actually is going on here? Well, notice the reasoning that James uses. He says, for Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him. What's he saying? You Gentiles are going to be in a city where Jews are. It's going to be what, what, what you're going to have. Moses is preached in every city. And so he's saying, if you want to be united and connected with Jewish people in a body of Christ, there are going to be some sensitivities that graciously you can respect and not put a thumb in the eye of some of these Jews. And in the same way he was saying, if you want to spread the gospel, if you want to evangelize the Jews in your community, the Jews are not coming in a door of someone who says that on their, on their feast days in the church, they're eating idol-worshiping meat. They're not going to do it. They're not going to come in and sit down to you and eat a bloody steak. It's not going to happen. And so therefore, if you want not only to have unity in the body of Christ, but also to evangelize the Jews that are in your city, you're going to have to have some sensitivity to their own prejudices. Now, do you see here what James is saying? And do you see here what a powerful example and witness this is to us The first thing is this, we stand on the authority of God's word in terms of deciding what the Bible says for our practice and for our life here as a church. But secondly, we are always sensitive to, we are always, as much as we can be, aware of the prejudices that will hinder the spread of the gospel of Christ. It's very simple. We are surrounded by Muslim neighbors. By Somalis. We would love to see Somalis come into our church and accept by faith the work of Jesus Christ. There's not a chance that if we have a group dinner here at church, we're going to be openly advertising our pork. That's very simple. Why? Because we are not going to be attracting, we are not going to be overcoming that prejudice when we're already seeking to to see the work of God done in them in Jesus Christ, and you could simply go on down the list. The question that we should be asking ourselves is, are any of our cultural, not biblical, are any of our cultural practices putting up a barrier to the work of God among the various cultures and ethnicities in this city? And if they are, out of sensitivity and love for the gospel, we should say, well, that one's gone. Just like James says, you Gentiles, if you want to be united in the local church and you want to be spreading the gospel in your city, you must be sensitive to these kinds of prejudices, extra biblical prejudices, yes, but prejudices that would hinder the work that God is trying to do in your area. Now, that gives us, I think, a framework, a framework for thinking about these issues biblically. First of all, God, you're at work in this city. You're at work across all people groups in this city. And we don't want to hinder you for one moment. We want to assist what you're doing. Secondly, what's our authority? Is our authority simply doing what our culture wants us to do here in our local church? No, our authority is the word of God that tells us what is right and what is wrong. What should be insisted on, what must be insisted on, and what need not be insisted on. And ultimately, we stand on the plain text of the word of God. And ultimately, and thirdly, the framework involves a sensitivity, an awareness, the same thing that Paul had when he had said, I am become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. A cultural sensitivity to the work of God that is in the city. I remember this. Um, some of you have heard of Adrian Burden, a wonderful black evangelist who will be coming um, Lord willing, next Camp should tech to preach to us in 2023. I remember listening to a podcast with him on racial issues affecting the church. And he said how we went to a church once and there were a group of men sitting around a table and they were talking about Colin Kaepernick. And Colin Kaepernick, the, fam- the football player who famously took a knee during the national anthem and caused all kinds of cultural and political uh, 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 dispute. And he said on this podcast, he said, I, I sat around that table and listened as these men just absolutely, politically and other things, just absolutely went to town on Colin Kaepernick, just criticizing him up and down, disparaging him. And Adrian Burden said there was, there was a black man who would come in and he had sat down at the table. And he was listening to this, new to the church, didn't know anything. And he, Adrian Burden said, I looked at him and he said, I knew he was never going to hear anything from me that day. I just knew. I, knew. I knew he was not. He, he had just tuned out. There was something about the way that these men had approached this issue with complete lack of awareness, with a complete insensitivity to the issues that were important to this man that affected his willingness in that day and in that moment to listen to the words of the gospel. And on that issue and in a variety of others, if we want to, in this church, have a, a, a ministry that reaches multicultural, multiracially, multiethnically, multi, multisocioeconomically socioeconomically, not just on that issue but on a variety of issues, we are going to have to have the awareness and the sensitivity that listens and that discerns to what is truly biblical in our midst and must be insisted upon and what is cultural, And then what may and indeed should be sacrificed, if you will, or at least have flexibility toward in a way that wouldn't hinder and that would assist the gospel of Christ. Now, in very specific and practical ways, there are many other things that we could talk about, many other things that we will have to think through and make sure that we are being sensitive to in our own light. But for today and for tonight, let's just simply recognize this. Our city in many ways and our ministry looks a lot like Antioch of Syria. And we have an opportunity. You look around at our church on a Sunday morning and you see the number of ethnic groups that are represented, the, 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 tints of skin color that are recognized, the socioeconomic statuses that are are here on any given Sunday morning. And you recognize that the same thing that is going to be a great blessing to us in our diversity is the same thing that might indeed be a stumbling block unless we have this awareness and unless we have this sensitivity. So as we go from this series in Antioch, let's remember always God is at work and we want to be supporting it, not hindering it. Our authority is the word of God, end of story, period. And thirdly, we must, by the Holy Spirit, have the kind of awareness and sensitivity to the challenges but also the opportunities of living and ministering in this city in a way that will further God's work and the spread of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for its authority over our lives. And we recognize that tonight. May you help us here not to take away from your truth of what you have proclaimed, but may you also help us not to add to it, not to put a yoke on necks of those in whom you are working. May we have the sensitivity and the awareness and the biblical discernment to be able to advance your truth and your gospel in this city.